Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. All right. Welcome to season four of the Deepen podcast. And this one is exciting because we are talking about if the tomb is empty, why the resurrection means anything is possible, a book that Pastor Joby and Charles wrote. And we're here. We're just going to talk about it. I mean, we're in a really special place. We're at the retreat center right now. And each week, we're just going to dive a little bit deeper into each chapter of this book. It goes along with the sermon series that we're in as a church right now, If the Tomb is Empty, ultimately leading up to Easter, which is like our Super Bowl, which is really exciting. And um, I am just personally so grateful to be here. I am a Jesus follower and a wife and a new mom, a little five-month-old baby. Um, So going through all that learning. Um, And I get to serve on our staff at the Church of 1122. And so it's just an honor to be able to read this book and gain so much personally. And now to sit here with the two of you and to dive deeper, because I know our church and beyond our church are going to get so much out of this book and this teaching series. So let's dive in. If the tomb is empty, you wrote your first book, Pastor Joby. This is like your, I don't know, 20... Fifth book? What is it? Something up there. We're in the 20s. It's got to be. Um, But this book released in February, and now we've started the sermon series. Just, Pastor Joby, how is this moment for you? Like, just give us like a little like temperature check. What are you feeling right now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a little, it's, well, my whole life is surreal, you know. Uh, I say this all the time. I can't get over the gospel. Um, I can't get beyond the idea that he took my place, that he would choose me, that he would redeem me. I was running as hard as I could the other way, and he walked me down, turned me around, and brought me to himself. Hmm. And if that was it, man, glory to God. I won the Super Bowl, right? And then the fact that he would call me and um, use me and all of those things in my life that led up to my salvation where I thought the what the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good. And um, that I would get to pastor our people. Um, I'm just overwhelmed with how um, how warm the response has been from our people. There's also been other people all over the all over the country that this is impacting, but the the fact that our folks have responded so warmly to this. My only goal was just to create a discipleship tool that would help people discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is just one more lane for people to be discipled. And so the fact that that is, is happening is, um, I don't know, man, it brings a smile to my face because I feel like it brings this, a smile to our father's face, like, like a good dad that's just proud of his kid. Not because of what the kid did, but a good dad who's proud of his kid because he's a good dad. And so... That's what I'm feeling right now. So good. And we're in this series as a church. You'll be preaching each week. It mirrors the chapters. We're leading up to Easter. We have so much going on as a church. It's it's just, I love that the resounding message is about the resurrection. It's, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. It's the most gospel-centered, Christ-exalting thing that we could be so focused on right now as a church. Yeah, and a part of that, Allie, is I think, uh, Charles, we talk about this a lot, man. There are so many good church folk 
that believe half of the gospel. Like if you were to ask people, most people, hopefully not at our church, but if you were to ask <laughs> the average church goer, if you were to die tonight and you're standing before Jesus in heaven and he says, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? And then most Christians would say, because you died on the cross for me, which is true. He did die on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. It's just not the whole picture. Because if all you understand about your salvation is that your slate has been wiped clean, then the implicit message is, now get out there and get it right this time. That's right. Which leads to this, like, I believe in Jesus for my justification, but it's up to me and my works for my sanctification. That is not the good news of the gospel. And the fact that Jesus resurrected from the grave and the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave lives in all three of us in this moment right now. Mm -hmm. And that Christ not only paid for our sins, but we were imputed with his resurrected righteousness. And so, therefore, we can take a breath that God delights in his kids because he's chosen us, he's paid for us, and if Jesus is the payment that satisfies, then God can't be dissatisfied in us. That means we still go to work because we were not saved by works, but we were saved to good works. But now we're working from a place of sonship mm -hmm. instead of a place of being a slave or a servant. So good. These things are different. For sure. And Charles, can you just tell us a little bit about your part in this process? This is a little bit different than what you're used to doing. Um, just tell us about tell us about you in this process. I'm just sitting here listening to Joby talk, and you know the way he the way he explains and puts, you know, what happened at the cross and through the tomb. Listening to him talk puts in a real. In, in like real English <laughs> stuff that I know and read, but helps me understand at a really, so what you just heard with him, I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to it again, but like when he and I would, would get together to work on this book, and it's very much his book. I was grateful to get to work with him, but it's his content. I mean, this started up there somewhere, you know, I'm mm -hmm. pointing at his head. <laughs> but I, I get here, I, and I, he, he teaches, and he, it's like a, you know, I'm sitting in front of him, and he, he gets to teaching and talking and it just he opens his mouth and the lord has granted him really cool revelation through the scriptures and i get to absorb it and then we get to try and figure out how to put it so what you just heard him say was a lot of the process for me you know we're at the retreat center we actually did we wrote some of the say, book in this room in right? this very room so i'm sitting there and he's sitting here mm -hmm. And then we'd move around into different places depending upon the weather and whether or not we wanted to light a fire <laughs> or something like that and but the process was a lot of that. I mean, he said several times it's been like a you know two man discipleship group, and it it was and it is. And I, he said he's grateful for it, but I, he doesn't know how grateful I am for it. Mm -hmm. I've loved it. Um, so the process for me was yes, I'm in you know twenty two, twenty three books now probably. I don't know. This is maybe twenty three. Uh, and it was a very different because most of the time for me writing is just me sitting in a room and you know pounding it out on the keyboard and trying to trying to you know figure out what's the next arc of the story or whatever and so this process was just different from the standpoint that I just got to digest what he wanted to say mm -hmm. and then try and figure out how to take what he normally preaches and put it in a book form because it's a little different like how you speak is not necessarily how you would write 
So he and I have had a fun time in edits, going back and forth and, um, you know, just editing and shaping the content so that it comes out, you know, maybe something that you would read. And I've loved it. I've wanted, you know, he talks about this being a discipleship tool, and it, it absolutely is. I cannot believe the number of times, well, you know, maybe half dozen, whatever, where I've been talking to folks, and I'm like, here, just read this. Right. Just let's start here with this conversation. For sure. I know. I am reminded in you saying that to not take for granted the way that you speak, you are communicating massive theological ideas in very plain English. Fact. And and now, just as a member of and sitting under your teaching for so many years, those things feel very commonplace to me. And I always try and remember the first times I heard them you know, back when I was a high schooler, when I first heard you preaching, and they blew my mind. And to think that now this book, which encapsulates that, could do that for someone else is, I mean, it's just, it's so awesome. It's so cool. So, but isn't, isn't that how Jesus taught? Like, right. he yeah. could have said, if you've got your scroll, unroll it to Isaiah, whatever. <laughs> you know, he could have done that and told you what all the Hebrew words are. But the disciples would say, tell us what the end of the world's going to be like. And he'd be like, all right. So there's this party, and there's these 10 girls waiting, you know? Right. And there's a guy, the a manager. He leaves some money with some people, and there's some sheep and some goats. Like, he would just he right. would just bring it down to the bottom shelf. But obviously, he's not watering anything down. Sure. So Maybe we've overcomplicated it over I, I, the years. I feel like my job, I mean, man, God's so gracious to me that I live in this time, and, um, and because of... The, honestly, because of the generosity of the people at our church, I am the, afforded the ability to spend the majority of my life all day, every day, studying the Bible in order to teach folks that don't have 50 hours a week to right. prepare sermons and dig in, right? My, I feel like my job is like the transformer that's outside of your house <laughs> that takes the, the, the voltage that's running through the tel or the the power line that if you plug directly into that would explode it and then the transformer transforms that energy into a usable way so that you can just plug in Great your analogy. whatever you plug in your curling iron and okay. it doesn't blow up <laughs> now that's not to say that that anybody needs me to understand the scripture Jesus makes it very very clear that the real teacher you hear me say this all the time the real teacher is the Holy Spirit mm, that. <clears throat> I um, I can expose you to the Word of God, but I cannot expose the Word of God to you. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So sure. I just try to put the trust in here. And then honestly, man, that's just how my brain works. I grew up in this family in Dillon, South Carolina. <laughs> and I can remember every year, I mean multiple times a year, but mo particularly Christmas Eve, we'd go to Uncle Philip's house. Uncle Philip was the one that had the Christmas lights on his chain link fence. And one day, one time we pulled up in July and they were still on. I was like, Daddy, why does Uncle Philip got on his Christmas lights? And he said, Boy, you can't hide money. So it's just those little things like that. It's just the, the air I grew up breathing. Right. And then we would, as a child, there would be layers of generation of men in our family telling the same stories over and over and over and over. And I can remember as I got to be about like college age, the, the kind of the granddads were beginning to move out. And my dad, it was like his generation's turn. So it was him and Uncle Pigeon. I had Uncle Pigeon. And oh, she did. Oh, I did. <laughs> and, they, and we would hear the same stories every year. 
And we, as children, we were captivated to hear them. Like, when they started, we knew the end of it, but we couldn't wait. We would start giggling before the punchline. And mm-hmm. and I, that's how we grew up, man. And mm-hmm. so it's a storytelling family. And so when I began to preach, you know, Coach Lee's advice was just talk about Jesus, talk about 30 minutes. But the only way I knew to talk about that was explain the Bible and then illustrate it with just some stories that people can relate to. And I hope, I'm not equating my teaching with Jesus, but for sure inspired by it, and I walk in his footsteps. So I think that's what he did. And I love, I feel like the book is, it is both and. It is unpacking, we're going to talk about it, but seven mountains, you're walking through scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, and the practical application and how that's played out in your personal life. So it is both this incredible picture of scripture from cover to cover and what does that look like in my day-to-day life, which I feel like is hard to do sometimes to have those two things line up in our in our world, but you, you do that in the book. Well, thanks. I also want to say <clears throat> it was a godsend to have Charles, and um, there was a lot of prayer and just God's divine appointment behind it. Um, I, I prayed a lot about when to write a first book. You only get your first one once. And in the world that I live in, because our church is so big and has grown so fast, and we have so many like podcast downloads and stuff, the powers that be were trying to, they were like, you need to do this, you need to do this. But, you know, like Mary told the servants at the wedding at Cana, do whatever he tells you to do. And I didn't want to write a book until he told me to write it. And then I'm reading your second nonfiction book, they turned the world upside down in my backyard a couple summers ago. Mm-hmm. And it's great because not only is he my friend, he's also my neighbor. He lives down the street from me. <laughs> so I would get to a park and then I would just call. I'd be like, I'd text him or call him and be like, we need to talk about this right now. Okay. Can you walk over to my house right <laughs> now? No, that's what would happen. I'd be like, hold on. Okay. Who, who told you this? Like, where did you get this line right here? I remember you were talking about Abraham and Isaac and you were like, you cannot pick up your cross while you're holding your Isaac. Fact. I had to just stop. I mean, bro, it's like a July sunny day, and I'm sitting out in my backyard by the pool. Everything's nice, and Gretchen comes out. She's like, why are you crying? What is going on? It was, something happened to the birds. So it was that kind of thing. So then I'm talking to, like, publisher-type people and agents and all that, and I, and I told them. They said, do you need a ghostwriter? And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing the thing you're talking about, like, sitting and I can't do that. <laughs> and... And then I told him, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Charles Martin to do it. And this guy who's known him forever is like, good luck. Like, that, that's not going to happen. I was like, I don't think you understand. That's, this is how this is going <laughs> down. <laughs> but that whole process and our friendship and honest to goodness, man, I, I don't think I've ever met someone that knows the scriptures like Charles does. It is, it is unbelievable. And I said this at our, our book launch party, but it, it came across, uh, people laugh like I was saying a joke. I don't mean this as a joke, and I don't mean this as like a poker or a slight on you. As I'm reading his Jesus books, what if it's true and they turn the world upside down, it was evident that, that I've been his preacher and pastor for a bunch of years. Yeah. I was so, one, I was so honored. And then secondly, I thought, well, I, I hope this is the case, right. that he's not just showing up and, like, sure. checking the box and not paying attention. Right. But, you know, 
it, it came through, and I thought, oh, man. So as we did this book together, he, he's right. The content was mine. The sermon content was mine, all of that. But I really needed help taking it from stage to page. And he pushed me in areas. There's a bunch. None of the personal stuff would have been there except for Charles said, listen, man, this is your first book. I think there are people that want to hear your story, the story sure. of our church. And Charles already knows all the stories. Right. So I'd be talking Abraham and Isaac. I'd be talking Mariah. And he'd be like, remember when um, your dad saved the dog? Tell me that one again. And the other thing that, unless you're a preacher, you don't know this, there are multiple versions of the same story. Not, not like details don't change, but sometimes you've got like the 10-minute version, and then sometimes you've got the two-minute version. Right. And so he would be like, all right, give me the long version. You know, you watch a Super Bowl commercial, and it's like a whole story. Yep. And then three weeks later, you just see a snippet of it, and you're like, oh, I already know that. Well, mm-hmm. he, he, had a li- he had a running list of either anecdotes or personal stories or things like that. And Pastor Britt said this recently in a conversation we had. Charles is the most spiritually intense dude I've ever met in my life. Facts. That is a fact. He's also fun and... You know, it's not like every time we get together, it's all like <laughs> counseling. But um, he would, he knows me well enough. I've invited him into my life to a point where sometimes when uh, there was something either that was really emotional or raw for me, there's a lot of people that would be like, let me avoid. Mm-hmm. And in this process, Charles would stick his finger in that and be like, let's talk about this for a minute. What's going on right here? And so that was a big part of the process. So good. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's go. So each chapter is a mountain and a question. So can you just talk for a second why that? Why did you decide to do the mountain name? And it's almost like a personal reflective question, if you will. It is. That was the... The mountain was years ago, I just, it just occurred to me that God, um, sometime in eternity past, knew he was going to shape this planet. Some places were going to be lower, some were going to be higher. And in these high places, he was going to do a thing that was significant, right? And it seems to me that God generally speaking, displays his glory up on these mountains and his love and mercy down in the valleys. Mm-hmm. And so it, it started there. And then through conversations and working on this together, two things happened. Uh, Charles said, we need to call the thing if the tomb is empty. And then that reshaped everything. Because mm-hmm. now the lens is not just mountain to mountain to mountain. It's how did God go from mountain to mountain to mountain to Mount Calvary because that mountain holds a tomb, but that tomb can't hold a body. That's right. Amen. <clears throat> and then if you look at the in, individual humans that we talk about on these mountains, that's something I want people to wrestle with and understand. Don't think veggie tales. Don't think flannel graph. <laughs> I don't even like the word story. Right. Because when you say story, like you write right. stories, because those people aren't real and you made right. them up. Yeah. And now they teach truth for real. Right. But these are events. Like Moses had a hair color and, you know, he was five foot, whatever he is, that kind of thing. And as these folks wrestled with God on these mountains, there was like a core question they were dealing with. 
And again, Charles was like, we should get at what that core question is there. And what's great about I mean, we we've probably got we've probably got eight questions per mountain (laughs) that we wrestled through. Yeah, Yeah, you know what I mean? And that was some of the hard work God was doing in us as we were sharing this. Because I don't know if you've ever preached a sermon before. I just like student ministry. I not just like bro. Well, it's, it probably it, it, matters more. They actually, well, yeah. I mean, I, I was more so saying that like I'm nothing good. <laughs> I'm sure it's incredible, but you guys know this when you preach, man. You're not done with it. It's not like I've got this figured out. Let me tell you what you need to know that I know about the Bible. That is not what, at least in my life. No, it is not. No, you feel about this big. And as you're like, as it's it's working on you as you're working it out, as you're delivering it. That's what it was like when we're putting Mm -hmm. this on the page, man. And so a lot of those questions, we were just asking to us, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's true. And what does it say about the Lord that the same question that was relevant to Abraham, we're going to get into Mount Moriah, is relevant to you and I today. I mean. Yeah, because he was a people, right. and we're people. And one of the things I want to do in this, C.S. Lewis talks about that oftentimes we have what he calls generational snobbery, where we look down our, our nose at ancient peoples as if they were somehow unsophisticated. But when you really get to the core of it, we're all just dealing with the same stuff. For sure. Sure. Yes, we. I don't know. I think we talked about this in the tavern. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux said something similar. He had what they call in intellectual circles the doctrine of Christian humility. But in essence, he said we are all but dwarfs perched atop the shoulders of giants. Mm. That's right. Same thing. C.S. Lewis bumps into. For sure. So, chapter one's Mount Moriah. The question here is: Do you live as though you can save yourself? And I just, a side note, on page 13, you talk about that a student from Clemson gave you a Bible. That was Mm -hmm. your very first Bible. And I just want to say that I went to Clemson, and I always knew it was the holiest of holy schools, and you are evidence now. You can talk about George all you want, but a girl from Clemson gave you your first Bible, so. (laughs) She does have a point. Thank you. Hey, man, that's great. All right, so um, you, you talk about, you know, once you surrender your life, a lot of people might think, easy street from here. And you even touch on your experience um, in, in chapter one, but can you talk about this a little bit more? Why Why does life not just magically get easier once you surrender? Because uh, God is so much more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Amen. And what, what feeds it? Um, look, man, we're here with our video crew, right? They're the best. They're the incredible. They are messengers of the gospel but a good story is here's who the person is here's the problem climax of the problem resolution that's a great story right i mean it's how hollywood's built mm-hmm. it's just not how life goes mm-hmm. and even when we share testimonies that's typically how we share our testimonies like if you were to ask me share with me your testimony i would say i was lost i met jesus now i'm found that's that's sort of like and maybe that's a part of part of the fingerprint of God in us, because it does, if you, if you stretch that thing out long enough, it does go really good. Sure. Heaven wipes away every tear. Right. But in every biblical account and in all of our personal experience, it's not, it's not up and to the right. <laughs> Hence mountains. You're either on a mountaintop, in the valley, or ascending or descending, mm-hmm. but you never just stay in one. 
And God would love us enough to bring us whatever, man, blessing or sorrow to detach our hands from the things of this world so that we would attach them to him. And that even changes in seasons, like with Abraham and Isaac. His greatest blessing had the potential to become the idol that would keep him from true surrender to the one true God. So you work with us at church. This great blessing that you have to get paid to be a part of a gospel advancement could be the very thing that you want to hold on to mm-hmm. that keeps you from holding on to Him. That's right. And He would love us enough. It is the love of God that we would face trials of many kinds that our hands would stay open to Him. Mm-hmm. And Romans 1 says it's actually the wrath of God that He would turn us over to our own desires that we could hold on to whatever we want to hold on to. Hmm. So with the question, do you live as though you can save yourself? Can you talk about what that question, where that came from? Is that Abraham, is that a, a reflection of how he's living his life? And, and where do we see his story go in regards to that question? Maybe, Charles, you can, you can start for us. One of my spiritual heroes was the father of one of my best friends, and he used to have this saying. Um, he would say he's a self-made man who worships his own creator. And when, when we got into this chapter, and I hear Joby talk about it, do you live as though you can save yourself? It's, it, is a, it is a question of two kings, you know, two fathers, one our father in heaven, Abba, kingdom of heaven, and then whoever else you want to put on the throne opposite that. And it, it, the, one of the beautiful things that I can't get over with the story of Abram and Isaac is Abram's obedience to get up early, to take the son of his love, all his hopes and dreams, all his crying out to the Lord, waiting 20-something years for this promise fulfilled. And, and there is this beautiful son, and God says, give me that. Well, there was, there was, I mean, we don't know Abram's com- conversation over that night, but I'm sure there was a really and the crying out and that whole thing. And, and yet, in obedience, he gets up early, he loads the wood on his son's shoulders, which is a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. And then it says the father took the fire and the knife and they climbed up that hill together. And I cannot, I cannot imagine Abram's breaking heart. Abraham's breaking heart. And yet he he does it. And the Lord tests him. And yet Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Look at the life of Paul. How many times did he get 39 stripes or 40 stripes minus one? I don't know. This whole thing about do you live as though you can save yourself really points at us, the idols in our own heart. Do we really believe, and I'm pointing at my Bible, do we really believe this thing or not? Is he really God? Mm. Which eventually, and it's a beautiful way to start the book, and points to Calvary, and they're the same mountain, Moriah and Calvary. Mm-hmm. But who is, who is enthroned in your heart? You and your ability to save you and your ability to control the outcome and the circumstances and all of your own life? Or is there real surrender? And the and Abram, Abraham was this pure, total surrender. But he, he does try to control his own life there for a bit. A couple times, think about this. 
Think about the at least two times where he tried to save his own life. And he, I don't know how else to say it, he pimps totally. out his wife yep. to a foreign king to save himself. Twice. Yep. He, three of the most dangerous words you can ever say as a human, I got this. And his plan didn't work out good. So something happens between that right. moment and the moment where he's at the bottom of the mountain. And you're right, Charles, the Bible, there no, there's not one wasted word in the Bible that on the day he was going to sacrifice his son, he got up early. Like, delayed obedience is disobedience. He got up early. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he says to the servants that are with him, in Hebrew, it's pretty clear, we will go worship and we will return. So how can he say that? Well, here's why, because he has faith. Well, what does that mean? He believes God is who he says he is and always keeps his promise. And what is the promise? Through this boy, your son, the son of your love, you're going to be the father of many nations. So in that moment where, where he says, see, this is the impossible situation. God, I don't understand. You promised me this kid, and more than that, you promised me that you were going to bless the whole world through him. So if I kill him up there, how are you going to do that? And even though I don't know how you're going to pull this off, I trust you. I just trust you. There's the title of the book. And I found myself as a pastor, particularly in the last 10 years at 1122, can't tell you the number of times people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm in an impossible situation an impossible marriage, my financial situation. I had this medical bill, and it did this, and I owe that, and I don't know what to do, or this relationship, she's leaving, and there's no chance she's coming back, whatever the thing is, man. My prodigal, I've prayed for numbers of years. My dad doesn't know the Lord, and this just seems impossible. And then one day, years ago, it fell out my mouth, well, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. So Abraham already believes that before he has all the words to put to it. Mm -hmm. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham was taught the gospel by God. So I don't know how that happens, but right. it does. Right. So what we we know by what we know by name, he knows by faith. Mm -hmm. And he knows that there is coming one that the Lord will provide the sacrifice. He knows that. And so he is trusting that. And that's how he's able to do this. Another thing that the Lord allowed us to do through really from chapter one all the way through th through the end, and then including book two from the chapter chapter one to the end of book two, with which we've just finished, is this whole idea of belief mm -hmm. and how it started there with pistuo and believing that versus believing in. And I'll, I'll let you preach on that in a minute. But Abraham believed God, right, and he. And he imputed righteousness to him because of that belief. So no matter how many times he pimped out his wife, which he did do, Abraham believed God, yep. and God credited that belief to him as righteousness, which is, I mean, no matter how far we mess up, no matter how many times, it's this beautiful thing of the Lord wrapping us in a robe. And All right, I won't go off on, go off on that, but it, it did a really cool thing for us in the beginning, chapter one, right there, very, very beginning, Belief in. Yeah. Abraham's belief in God credited to him as righteousness is 2 Corinthians 5.21 happening in the book of Genesis. Think about that. I mean, that's where we're starting. That's where we're, we're starting. And 
I mean, you, I think you've told me before, you were in my youth group. <laughs> yeah. And so you've been around church for a long time, even though you're still really young. <laughs> but you're grown and married and have a baby and all the things, right? And honestly, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> One of God's great graces in my life is getting to make disciples in this city that I love for a bunch of years. And and we get to see like the evidence of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like you said, being around church, you didn't really hear what Abraham had to do with Jesus and the empty tomb and the no, cross. Never. And <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know how you don't <laughs> Right. Like when you when you read the Bible with your gospel lenses, I you have to see this stuff. And honestly, people don't. So right. The Spirit of God, by His grace, is opening people's eyes to understand that the whole thing is about the whole thing is about Jesus, from the first page to the last page. The whole thing is about the cross and the empty tomb. Can we just take a moment? Can you encourage the group of people because there are a lot of them? You said you know over the years people come up to you and they say I'm in an impossible situation, and they're not lying. It, it feels. Impossible. The couple struggling with infertility, addiction, adultery. I mean, these things can feel. The enemy has a way of convincing you that the hole is deep and dark and you can't get out of it. And and I and it's so amazing that the phrase if the tomb is empty, anything is possible has become commonplace language for us. But I never wanted to lose the power that what we're actually saying here is massive. So can you just encourage that group of people who just are feeling like, can I believe this? This, this seems impossible. So I, I would say a couple of things. Okay, so what we're clinging to with the reality of the empty tomb is not that your marriage walked out of the empty tomb or a, fr- a clean health report walked out of the empty tomb or your prodigal walked out of the empty tomb but that Jesus walked out in the empty tomb. Like what you get is him. And the impossibility that he may walk you through is that somehow you have this peace that transcends all understanding, even if he does not change your circumstances. Mm. With that as the banner over which we're living under, but we still don't give up praying for your marriage and and a babe. Listen, man, I can introduce you. You know them to dozens of people that were told you will never have a baby and they're pregnant right now. A number of people, bro, one of my best friends was told you got three years to live and 18 good months. Right. And he's leading worship with us right now. You know, we're a year in and he's free and clear. Right. Then we also know just as many and we prayed and God didn't answer it that way. Yeah. And so what we get with, the cross and the resurrection is God will heal every disease of every believer. Sometimes it's on this side of eternity, but for sure it's on that side. And Jesus is the firstborn from among the grave, the prototoko, the prototype. And just as he conquered sin and death and resurrected, every one of us who is in him will also conquer sin and death and disease and all of those things. That is the ultimate of what we're holding on to and believe my, one of my favorite prayers when you find yourself in the impossible situation is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm-hmm. Right? <clears throat> Bow down to this idol, or we're going to throw you in the fire. They're like, here's their prayer. Very loose translation, but <laughs> all right, you do whatever you feel like you got to do. But here's what I know 
I know God can save us from the fire. Mm. I am believing that he will save mm. us from the fire. And even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down to your idol. Right. Amen. So good. Amen. That is an empty tomb prayer right there. Because right right. if God brought Jesus out of the grave, I know he could resurrect a marriage. For sure. And I am believing by faith that he is going to resurrect this marriage. And even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing down to that idol of fear and doubt. It also reminds me of what Peter says in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus just fed 5,000. Then he does the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon. Not very popular. People are leaving. (laughs) And he looks at the disciples. He knows the heart of them. And he says, you want to leave too? I think he asked Peter, do you want to leave? Because Peter wants to leave. Mm. Peter's looking around. It's like, I don't understand. What? And what's crazy is Jesus could have just answered his questions in that moment. He said, hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't have to eat my body. And That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about communion, okay? There will be a day where you're sitting in a row, and these trays will come by you, and you'll get this little thing of <laughs> juice, and you know, and it's to remember my life, death, and resurrection. Right. That's what I'm talking about. He didn't explain anything. He just says, you want to leave? And Peter's answer has, has been an anchor in my life when mm-hmm. I, I don't— when I don't think God is doing what I want him to do. Where are we going to go? Right. Where else are you going to go? You're the only one that offers eternal life. That's true. Amen. All right, let's talk about Sarah for a minute. Because we can't sleep on her. She, she plays a part in all this. So tell us what her significance in this, in this historical event is. So it starts, I mean, you, you actually see her faithfulness from the very beginning, even more so than Abram's. And I will say, it gets confusing because God changes their name, you it's know? It's a little, I, in that moment, I didn't even know if I should say Sarai or Sarah. It's I a think little we confusing. should just say Abraham and Sarah always and just know that sometimes <laughs> they're called different things. Okay. So, at, so Abraham is living, living in the earth of the Chaldees. He's, he's, he's actually got life going pretty good, and God tells him to move. And he says, where? And he says, well, I'll tell you when you get there. Okay. So by faith, he does what God says, but at least he can hang on to a first-person interaction with God. And I don't know exactly how it happens, but he's not questioning or denying that God told him that. Now, Sarah has to rely on a second-person interaction. So not only does she have to have faith in God, she's got to have faith in her husband that he's hearing from God. And here's what is just, I can hardly get the three people that live in my house that share my last name to get in my truck to go to an undeclosed destination. They want to know where are we going, how long are we going to be there, do they have chicken fingers? You know, I mean, they've got to Staple know. Questions. You know what I mean? And so there she is, man. She starts. And then you also see, this is why, this is, this is the kind of thing that led C.S. Lewis to Christ. Okay, so J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are sitting in the Eagle and Child, nerding out on fantasies and why you have dreams and all this kind of stuff. I imagine it kind of like you're the two of you, your conversations. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. They may have talked about hunting less, but okay. <clears throat> so part of what Tolkien would point Lewis to, Lewis was um, a PhD in medieval mythology, and he was. So he's talking about the interpersonal intricacies of Sarah in Genesis does not match up with 
ancient mythology. Like she's struggling years after God has promised a baby. And then an angel says, next year you're going to have a baby. And she laughs about it. Hence Isaac's name. And Tolkien is like, he says this. This is what puts, he, this is what puts Lewis over the edge. Because he's talking to him about myth and mythology. And he doesn't mean myth in a derogatory term. There's a lot of truth in myth. Mm. There's a lot of like core humans just understand good versus evil, you know, mm. kind of thing. And then he says this about the, about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the details of the scriptures. He just says, what if the myth is true? That's what he says. Hmm. What if the myth is true? Lewis leaves the eagle and child. He's going back towards the dorm room that he lived in. He was a professor at Oxford. And he gets on this path called Addison's Walk. And he says, his own words are, when he, was, when he began on that path, he was not a believer. And he was the most reluctant convert in all of England, is what he says. And when he got to the end of that path, in our language, he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ. So well, it was some of the things like the, the humanity of Sarah that put him over the edge. Think about that. Okay, you're a, you're a wife and mom. Imagine if your husband just came home one day and said, God told me we're moving. Where? He told me he would tell us when we get there. <laughs> and then you started packing. Yeah. That's faith, man. And I'm just going to tell you, bro, we're in ministry. If mama ain't on board with what God's called you to do, it ain't happening. Right. And, and I know your wife and I know your marriage and you know mine. And I tell our staff this all the time, bro. You either marry your lid or your launch pad. For sure. Well, Abraham married a launch pad. So did I. So yeah, did both he. of you. I was about to say, both of you married launch pads. No sure. doubt, man. For sure. Abraham was kind of a mess. So... What, how do we as humans now read this and what can we pull from God's character about using the kind of man Abraham was? We have a tendency to look at our circumstances and then jump from our circumstances to a summation about the character of God. And we, we tend to think, because I'm in this place, and then, and then we let the enemy whisper to us the same thing he whispered to Jesus, did God say, and all the lies that come along with that. And we, we wrap our belief structure in an experience-driven thing that says, because I'm experiencing this, and because I believe these whispers, God can't be that, or God is that. We get to this later with the woman with the issue of blood, and you see it in the life of Bartimaeus, the blind beggar at the gate, that it would have been, even the, the blind man in the pool of Bethesda, it would have been really simple for them to look at their circumstances, a decade or more of total blood loss, anemia, a lifetime of blindness. Uh, I, can't, I can't help me. I, and they could have just sat there and stayed there. And then we see this beautiful picture and I know you asked me about Abraham, but I'm going to bring it back to the woman with the issue of blood. She did not let her circumstances dictate her belief. 
in who he is. And we, we face, this is one of the beautiful things about this first chapter. It asks the question from the beginning, what do you believe about you? And what do you believe about the one who spoke you into existence and fashioned you from the dust of the earth? And he either is who his word says he is, or he is not. Choose. And the thing I love from Abraham to that beautiful woman, you know, elbowing her way through the crowd, mm. is they chose not to believe their circumstances. It would have been really easy for Abraham to get really angry at God. I mean, I have three boys. The Lord appeared to me and said, you know, sacrifice one. We're going to have a really difficult conversation. He, he didn't, and somehow or another, his circumstances dic- did not dictate the nature, his, his understanding and his belief in the nature of the God that he worshiped. That's good. Sally, I, th- I think one of the things that we do as we read back on the life of Abraham is as modern-day sophisticated believers, we underestimate the severity of our own sin against a holy God that all three of us have pimped out our spouse for our own belief, for our own benefit. We have, man. If you've ever had a lustful thought according to Jesus, you've done the Abraham thing. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hold on. And the problem is, is when you, when you underestimate the, the vileness of sin in your own life, then it causes you to also underestimate the, the grace of God towards mm-hmm. you as if God gave Abraham any more grace than he gave me, as if Abraham needed a lot more grace than I need. <laughs> and then we begin to move into this, this idea that God picked Abraham because he was the only righteous man on the planet. That is not what happened. It was by God's grace that he even picked Abraham to begin with. And then that can begin to lead us to think, well, I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, and that's why God picked me to do the things he picked me to do, and it is a complete and total misunderstanding of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God chose a wretched, black-hearted sinner named Abram, and, and Abraham put his faith in God, trusted in God, bestowed in God. God credited to him his righteousness, and then it doesn't stop there. How about this? The New Testament says Abraham was God's friend. Mm-hmm. That's what the gospel does. And then Jesus says to his disciples... I call you friends. That's what the gospel does. But if you underestimate our own sin, it will cause us to underestimate the immeasurable riches of His grace poured out on us as sinners. That's right. And it will prevent you from being His friend. You'll be like a contract hourly worker for Him, Hmm. basing your relationship with him on the things that you do and perform. That's different than, I call you my friend. And isn't the opposite true too? You can, if you're someone who thinks, no, I'm out, I, I, I'm disqualified, you could look at this and, and say, no, God's goodness. I've also underestimated his goodness in that regard. Of course he can use me and all my jacked up stuff. You talk about this all the time. No matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you are, God is sovereign in both. That's a fact, yeah. So you talk about pruning, and this was a really eye-opening moment for me. I think when I've always learned about pruning, it was cutting away the bad, which can be very painful. Mm-hmm. 
to expose the good and for fruit to grow. And you had a, a line in the book, even the things to brag about. And that was kind of this light bulb moment for me of pruning is not only stripping, well, it is stripping the bad, but things that can look good that need to be stripped away, things that we may say, God's gifted me in this, I'm doing this. So can you talk a little bit about that pruning process, both things to brag about and things that sin and and all that? Yeah, man. I mean, if if you've ever pruned a thing, you don't just cut off the dead. You cut back the living so that it can, in its death, really produce fruit. Um, I think about, there's a real struggle I had, a real like internal struggle that I don't even know if I can explain it well because it it won't even make sense like in the natural. But for 15 years, I'm doing student ministry and loving it. Like I said, as you were a youth pastor, had it made, man. We had our own building, had my own staff. I mean, it it was so great. It was so great. And for a year, I began praying this prayer to the Lord. All right, Lord, I surrender. He led me to pray, I surrender. I'm a Christian, man. I've been a Christian in a minute. And I would even say, I'm not even sure what I'm asking to surrender. I'm just saying, <laughs> I think you're asking me to surrender. Yeah. Okay. I'm at a business meeting at Beach United Methodist Church. I don't even know what we're voting on, something. <laughs> and it hit me like a ton of bricks. 11.22, the service had just started, and God asked me to surrender youth ministry. Mm. And I was like, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> you misunderstood me. Not surrender that. <laughs> no, that's good. You gave it to me. Right. I honestly, in retrospect, there was a lot of what I was doing, and I was just operating in my own flesh, in my own ego, in my own giftedness for right reasons. I wanted to make disciples. But God said, no, give that to me. And I remember I broke down in tears at this business meeting. I was so embarrassed. And I didn't even feel like all these people could even understand what I was talking about. So I went and hid in Block 84 between two curtains. And I'm just, it was a stage that we did our student ministry events in. And um, it had these like theatrical curtain things. And I got between two of them to hide. And I'm just weeping. And Ryan Stone comes over and just puts his hand on my head and starts praying for me. It was in that moment that I said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do student ministry. I'm going to do this 1122 thing. Wow. All right, so... Bro, it's your line from they turn the world upside down that you can't pick up your cross if you still hold on to your Isaac. And I've said this a bunch, man. The enemy would love nothing better. He can't do anything about your salvation. But if he can get you to worship the creation instead of the creator, if he can get you to love the blessing more than the blesser, if he can get you to take a good thing, your child, your marriage, your ministry, and worship it as a God thing, he's winning. Right. And so he pruned that thing that I loved away. And if he did it then, we ain't doing this. That's right. That's good. Christine, let me say one thing about pruning before you before you go on. Christine and I just went to uh we flew to Sonoma. Right. For book research. <laughs> you can't see me. I'm making finger quotation marks with my fingers. And we met with these um phenomenal guys who'd been making wine for decades. The one guy I met with, Robert Rex, this year will be his 50th harvest. And one day he took us down out of their winery and into an old Zinfandel uh, grove. And there were were 
it's I think it's safe to say there were thousands of Zinvendel vines. And these are really big. They kind of look like ancient wisteria vines. They're really big. They're probably six or eight inches, nine inches in diameter. And some of them are 100 years old. And he began, he, he brought a little pair of pruning shears with him. And he showed me how they would prune a vine. And as I'm standing there in the midst of literally thousands of vines, it struck me that the one who keeps the vineyard prunes each vine by hand. It's not like he sends a machine out, but he prunes this vine for this place to produce this fruit. And it wasn't so much that, you know, I always thought that that he's always just cutting off the bad, the dead. That's not always true. Sometimes he's pruning what has just produced fruit because he knows it's going to produce more fruit next year if he can get rid of this. And he'll take it back to this bud or this intersection of these two things that grow together and... It just struck me the intentionality of the one who prunes, the, the vine dresser. And Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. And that his, his perspective is not on, gee, look at what you just did. His perspective is on that, but it's also on, I'm going to produce fruit out of you for a hundred years. Mm. And I'm making you now into the vine that you're going to be a decade, two, three decades down the road because I still want you producing fruit for my kingdom. It was just an amazing... We did taste some really great wines too, by the way. <laughs> but it was an amazing thing just to stand there and for that re, that reality to hit me that the Lord does this, prunes us by hand to produce fruits, which you can take it one step further. He then crushes it's like we're singing that song lately new wine and yeah we could go down a huge rabbit hole here but if you think about the pruning that starts way at the beginning on the vine to the time you're taking the sip out of the glass of the wine everything that happens between there the pruning the crushing the pressing god's making this new thing it's really such a beautiful picture okay one one final thing before we close out So until you, I don't think I ever heard Abraham and Isaac preached with closing with a salvation invitation. So how does it make sense? I I know it makes sense to me now after sitting under your teaching, like I said, for many years. But why does that just make perfect sense to do that? When John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes at night. He's a Pharisee, an expert in the law. He's got all of the Old Testament memorized. So I'm sure plenty of people listening have many verses memorized. Mm -hmm. He has them all memorized from Genesis to Malachi. He has has spent, yeah, Charles is right on his heels. (laughs) He spent an entire lifetime of biblical jujitsu with other Pharisees in order to be like crowned a Pharisee. Okay. Right. And so Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and says, surely you must be of God because no one could do miracles like you're doing. And then Jesus goes, Straight top shelf. Unless one is born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right over Nicodemus' head. Nicodemus asked the worst question I've ever heard in all the Bible. <laughs> is a man to re-enter his mother? And Jesus is like, stop it. Whoa. This is not. And then Jesus is like, are you even smart? Okay. So then what Jesus does is he does rabbi tricks. He knows that Nicodemus is well-versed in the word. And so he 
reminds him of Moses and the bronze snake, and and Nicodemus is like, I know that one. And then the most Christ, the most famous Christian verse, John three sixteen, mm-hmm. is talking about Abraham and Isaac. Yes, there was a uh, there was a, a, a in Greek it's called protologos, first words. And as a Pharisee, you would study the first time the Bible ever talks about whatever. So when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, the first time the word love is used that way, like a father's love for his son, is when the Bible describes Abraham's love Mm -hmm. for Isaac. So the moment, um, uh, another technique they would use is called a remez. We talk about that a lot. That all I've got to do is say happy birthday, and the rest of the song is in your mind. And so that's what he's doing, man. He's planting these like earworms in his head, okay? This is like inception stuff. He's like, you know this, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or one and only son. Monogenous is the word. It means like of the same essence. Isaac is the only begotten son of Abraham, even though he has another son, but that son is a son of his works, not a son of his faith. That other son is not a son of miracle. It's a man-made son. That other son is not a son of the covenant. He went outside of the covenant. That is a picture of works-based righteousness. Mm-hmm. That's the life that Nicodemus is living. He's saying, I got this. Okay. And what he's talking about is this father that so loved the son that son put wood on his back, climbed a mountain. By the way, the mountain they're standing around. Climbed a mountain. Got the boy asked the dad. By the way, Isaac's not like three years old, fresh out of pull-ups either. Okay, he's a teenager. Hundred. I mean, he was. He's, let's say seventeen years old, sixteen years old. I have a sixteen-year-old. Let's say sixteen, which would put Abraham at one hundred and sixteen. And he says well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. So that's what they named the mountain. The Lord will provide. And then binds him and raises the knife. Now, I don't know if you've wrestled a 116-year-old lately, but my 16-year-old can almost whip me. (laughs) I'm sure he's going to get me when I'm 116. You could at least run away from 116. (laughs) Which means that the son of the love of the father laid himself down on the altar to mm. give his life because not my will but thy will be done. Mm. And then the angel says, stop. This is very important, by the way. Didn't make the book, didn't make the sermon. Don't do what God told you to do. Do what God is telling you to do. If I, if I only did what God told me to do, I would have never left youth ministry because at one point he told me to do youth ministry. You do what God is telling you to do. That's really good. Okay? Because oftentimes, he's just, he's just calling you out one step at a time, right? <clears throat> and a lot of good church folks get stuck in what God mm-hmm. said, not what God is saying right now. And God doesn't change. He's not changing his mind. He always knew where you were going. The angel says, stop. There is a ram, a male lamb grown with his head caught in thorns. What this whole Mount Moriah points to is God says, Abraham, sacrifice your one and only son. And then 
by faith, as Abraham's going to go through it, God says, never mind, we'll use mine. And the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world with a crown of thorns on his head, puts the wood on his back, goes up that same mountain, and the Lord provides a substitutionary atonement. The mountain of Moriah is about our salvation in Jesus Christ, period. So whosoever would believe, whosoever would have faith, would trust that Jesus was your substitute, you will not perish but have everlasting life. And to which I would just say, if you're listening to this and somebody just sent it to you and you've never trusted Jesus, then right now, just admit it. I need a Savior. I need somebody that can do for me what I can't do for me. And I believe that somehow when Christ died on the cross, he was my substitute. And in this moment, surrender, confess him as Lord. And you are a part of the whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. And then email joby.martin at cw22.com because we want to know. 100% because we want to help you get plugged in. Yeah, so good. Well, our, our time today has come to a close, but I just thank you both so much. It's been fun to unpack Chapter one, week one. We'll be back next week with week two, chapter two. Um, Pastor Joey, will you close us in prayer? I'd be happy to. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are worthy to be trusted. Mm -hmm. You always keep your promises because that is who you are. And we thank you for Jesus that in him, he is the yes and amen of every promise and every prophecy you've ever given. Lord, I pray right now for any man or woman, student, who right now has accepted Christ as their substitute, Lord. Would they just know that the angels in heaven rejoice over the one who has come home? Lord, I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in every single believer. Lord, I pray that we would continuously keep our hands wide open of everything that you've given us, that we would keep our eyes focused on you. God, we rejoice when you prune us when you cut away any competition for your glory in our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.